Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas this September 24th through the 25th at the National Faith Driven Entrepreneur Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Phil Vischer, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. The other aspect of that is that sometimes there's ministries that say, we want to meet with you. We've heard that you have some smart friends and we could really get some help, but we're not ready to meet because we don't have our act together. To which I say, if you had your act together, my friends would not be interested in meeting with you. What we're meeting about is the fact that you don't have it all together, and that is what is of interest to us. Oh, okay. Well, we don't even know the questions to ask. And so, well, you still got it wrong. You're not going to be asking the questions. We're asking the questions. Oh, okay. Then they come and they get some benefit. Hey, everyone. It's the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm going to make a prediction. After this episode, no matter where you are, you're going to start thinking about that special box, the one in the back of the closet that you've had since you were a kid that has that collectible baseball card in it. Because if you grew up collecting baseball cards, you're going to love today's show. We sat down and we talked with Jim Beckett, the creator of Beckett Magazine. We all know that one. It was the gold standard for valuing trading cards. Jim shared with us his personal story. He gave us some insights into the memorabilia collected in his office, which sounds really cool. Jim also told us about how he stewarded his influence to be a further encouragement to aspiring faith-driven entrepreneurs through his organization, Shine. Our time with Jim was fun, interesting, educational, and we think you're going to enjoy it. So let's get to it. Jim, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Henry and friends. We're excited to hear your story and want to start by letting our listeners know a bit about who you are. One of the things I had known, there are a lot of things I do know about Jim. Jim's been a great host to me and to some of my friends over the time. He's been a great leader in the larger faith-driven entrepreneurial community, particularly in Dallas, where he's got the gift of hospitality. Many of you don't know that Jim is the founder of Beckett Publications, which is the world's largest sports and entertainment collectibles publisher. I bet you that 25 to 30% of our audience has picked up a Beckett guide at some point in time in their life. So he's a legend in the trading card world. And uh, what a lot of you don't know is something I didn't know until five minutes before we started our podcast, and that Jim has actually recorded more podcasts than we have. He does one daily. We do one weekly and think it's a big production and pat ourselves on the back all the time. But this is old hat for Jim. Jim does them daily. Jim, tell us about it. Well, I've been thinking about it for a long time. Got feedback from a lot of good friends. And I thought, how do I want to tell my story? When I went through halftime with Bob Buford, I don't know if you've done that, but they ask you what your life's going to look like, what your life of significance. And this was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I had not done on my long-term list was write a book. And I had inertia about that. And what I realized that podcasting can be the new 
form of telling your story. Yeah. Instead of if I were blogging, I'd still be working on that first blog and making sure the punctuation was just right and that I said exactly what I wanted to say perfectly. Whereas with a podcast, you turn on the mic, you give 15 minutes of talk about a topic and close the door, send it out. And it's less than perfect, but it's you know, an opportunity to do it again the next day on a different topic. And so before we get into just the story about how it all started, because I very much want to hear it again. I want our listeners to hear it. Tell us about your favorite collectible. Who's your favorite player? What's your favorite part of memorabilia? My favorite player uh, since being a kid, I grew, grew up in Pittsburgh. And so it's Roberto Clemente. Mm. He, he passed away in late. 1970. New Year's Eve, 72. Oh, 72. Yeah, New Year's Eve, 72. On a relief uh, mission down to Panama, right? Or Nicaragua, yeah. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of stuff of his, and I've collected everything. One of the secrets when I was doing all these price guides is not to be too enamored of any one player to avoid uh, bias. But I've been pretty public about uh, growing up and seeing uh, Roberto Clemente as a great man and a great player. Well, he's a great humanitarian. That's, of course, how he died and adds so much to the legacy, And which is why a lot of our listeners, even though this is a guy who died almost 50 years ago, people will know who he is. So tell us this story, though. Tell us about how you got started growing up as a kid, what sports meant to you. I think that everybody wants to be able to make a business out of things that they truly enjoy. And it seems to me that you figured out how to do it. So tell us how it happened. Well, as you said, I've got a podcast, Dr. James Beckett Sports Card Insights, and I deal with that over a period of several episodes over the days, but I'll give you the highlights. You know, I'm seven years of age. We're driving down the road. My dad pulls over to get gas with our family. I'm the oldest of five, although there were probably three of us at that time, four of us at that time. And he pulls in this gas station and said, I don't think he said, hey, son, here's a penny. (laughs) You've been great. But he bought a penny pack of cards for me. And in that pack of cards was the politically incorrect name of Spook Jacobs, (laughs) utility fielder. Now, I could have gotten Willie Mays. I could have gotten Mickey Mantle. I could have gotten Duke Snyder. They were all in that series of tops in 1956. But no, I got Spook Jacobs. Undaunted, I did not start collecting that year. I don't remember any more cards. I don't remember really any the next year, but in the following year, I started collecting and I'd save up my nickels and cards were a nickel a pack in those days. And everybody- You still had that Spook Jacobs card? Yes, yes. Wow. It's on my wall. It's on my wall. Okay, so continue on, please. Okay, so I collected as a kid. That was a lot of fun. We moved a lot. And so every time I moved, it was one of the unifying elements and socializing elements of my childhood at least during that preteen period. And then teenage years, like not everybody, but most people, I stepped out of that hobby. I had a younger brother, though, so that helped. My dad had been a collector when he was a kid, so he saved his cards. I got his cards. And then in college, I was hurting for money and uh, thought about selling my cards. Answered an ad in the paper from a guy who wound up being a very close friend of mine who did not buy my cards. Otherwise, history would be different. But then I broke up with my girlfriend, who was the reason I was trying to raise money. Again, that's oh, my not, goodness. not an issue. But uh, then later in grad school, 
I got back with this guy and we together started the first collecting clubs and conventions in this area. And it was just off of the races after that. I had a hobby that you could pick it up when you wanted to, put it down when you wanted to, but it was very dynamic. And I was in on the ground floor with something that I was finishing my PhD and I realized the scholarly articles I was doing that enabled me to get tenure early, there were less people reading that than people that read my first price survey in the first day. And I thought, you have to market here and you need to fan the flames, which I did gently. It It wasn't an overnight success, but from humble beginnings in 76, of doing these price surveys and passing them out for free. By 1979, I had the first book length treatment, an annual price guide. And in 84, I started the monthly magazines. So how many people told you you were crazy back then? They couldn't evaluate it enough to make the crazy determination. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things when I'm doing my uh, pro bono consulting, uh, I ask, who are your wisdom figures? And most people come up with nothing. Well, I had some wisdom figures. I probably had less then than I do now. But it was, uh, again, I know you have an audience of entrepreneurs, but I'm relatively risk averse. But for some reason, God... I won't say told me, but it just was so obvious to me that this was a big opportunity and that it had my name on it. And Mm. so I just, did I boldly step out? No, I burnt my candle at both ends and and did my full-time job and did this on the side, did not draw any pay for a couple of years. And it gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger. And a few years later, I'm looking around, I've got 200 employees almost, and we're selling millions of magazines. And I, obviously, wow. I had dropped the other job, which was very lucrative enough for me to bootstrap. Wow. I want to get into the science of uh, how you valued cards back in those days, but I have to, I'm never going to get a chance to ask anybody else this question. So I'm going to ask you this question. So I've got a Kentucky Derby glass collection that goes back to the late 1930s. Is that worth anything? Sure. Everything's worth something. It's just... Okay. Okay. In a minute, I'm going to have my wife come in because she needs to hear this. <laughs> and, and, and it's probably useful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I got them all at that, you know, as you said, memorabilia and collectibles. I know that feeling. But uh, talk to us about the science. I mean, when you were deciding to value trading cards, this is long before you had an algorithm that told us how many were out there in supply and demand. How did you do it back then? Well, there is no algorithm. There's some art and some science. And under my regime and even continuing on, there's as much science as we can detect. There's a lot of things in the world that we just can't completely figure out. But the science of statistics is decision-making in the face of uncertainty. The uncertainty is always there, but there's a lot of data as well. And as much as possible, we were digging out the data that was less readily available in those days. We had employees traveling to the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Midwest every weekend for these seemingly omnipresent card shows back in the heyday. Did you ever have a player that came to you and took issue with the fact that you weren't rating his card higher? I mean, they didn't come to me. They'd go to my employees. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Any, Any stories you could share on that? And you don't have to. I'm putting you on the spot, but no, it's, again, the correlation of pricing is very strong with on-field performance. Mm-hmm. So if they complain about their card value, 
uh, hit a few more home runs. <laughs> yeah, that's a good response. Yeah, back in my video game days, they used to come to us at EA and complain all the time about their ratings. And, you know, I'm I'm faster than that. I'm better than that. You know, I could jump higher than that. Uh, it was fascinating. As much as possible, we're trying to analyze the empirical data. And so right. if this is what it uh, sold for, that's that's the current value. And, you know, it could go up the next month. There actually are players, though, who have tried to buy up their own cards. Really? Corner the market on their cards? Yes. Maybe not corner the market, but to influence the market. Wow. I mean, I did that with my first business book, but that was only because I was the only one who was going to buy it. <laughs> I want to talk about just, you know, you, you've got 200 employees, you've got challenges in starting and in culture and a lot of lessons along the way about your relationship with God and your relationship with your employees. So I'm prepping you a little bit, but before I let you off of the celebrity of it all, are there any, you're talking about some of the sports stars going out there and buying their own cards, but are there any that you know of that are just really known for being really avid collectors of sports memorabilia? Uh, the current player that's the most avid collector, I think, is Pat Neshek, the pitcher. You know, but again, if you're in the locker room there and you're trading jerseys, uh, your jersey for somebody else, and then uh, there's a lot of collectors that will trade cards for jerseys. You yeah. know, it's, there's a currency there. In fact, all along, for 50 years, as long as I've been involved, more than 50 years, Cash is not always king in the collectibles field. Sometimes having a better item is better than cash in terms of if I want something that you have, you may not accept my cash, but you might accept the trade of something that you really want. So if I can get something you want, that could actually be worth more than cash. And that's what some of these players do. They can procure things that are better than cash. All right. So now you've got this business, you're leaving to, you've got employees, you're starting to get circulation at 79, 80, 81, 82. As with any faith-driven entrepreneur that's had success over a long period of time, there are all sorts of lessons learned. And I know you all enough to know that you've taken pains to share those with others. Give us an overview of that. Give us some of the lessons that you've learned with time. Uh, when I meet with some of these ministries and businesses, because as I said, I do a lot of this pro bono consulting, I try to take what appears to be a disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. One of the presenting disadvantages I had starting out is I couldn't hire employees with experience. I turned that into an advantage by hiring based on character, integrity, work ethic, ability, uh, you know, lifetime learners, you know, and then we formed our own team. And I had a fabulous team. If we would have been in an industry that was established, you know, we never hired from other competitors. That was not in our radar. We trained our own. And that built an esprit de corps. Uh, in fact, I have a podcast episode on nuanced nepotism, which is talking about the fact that nepotism is not all bad. When we were growing so fast, we hired a lot of people that were related to people that were already on the team. And that worked out great because I didn't have to fire him. The brother told his sister that came on board, look, you're making me look bad. Up your game or I'm going to pull your plug. So you didn't have to. I didn't have to. And it's not nepotism if I'm hiring their sister or their husband or their mother or their daughter or whatever. So we had a lot of interesting relationships 
not exclusively, obviously, but we didn't look the other way. When we needed somebody the next week, we could put an ad in the paper or one of the star employees could say, hey, my brother is not happy where he is. He's really good at X, Y, Z. Could we give him a chance? And that's what I said. Nepotism, if you're just giving somebody a chance, I don't mind that. If they're employees for life with no standards of performance, that's no good. I'm with you on that. So talk to us more about the people that you then hired and just the lessons that you learned in managing. What it looked like. uh, So I'm an employee at Beckett back in 1987. What am I experiencing at Beckett that might be different than another job that I'm going to? You'd have a sense that this was a very positive, wholesome family kind of company where people helped each other. Again, I I think I was a really good boss when we were in an up market and when things were more nebulous. As we got bigger, it got a little more corporate. And when the industry leveled off, I don't think I was, uh, I wasn't great. Let's put it that way. I wasn't terrible. But the things that make me an excellent husband, that my loyalty and faithfulness are not always (laughs) helpful when you're running a company. I gave people too many chances sometimes. And rather than tell you about if eight out of 10 of those chances didn't work out very well, I want to tell you about the two that did. And again, the odds are not with me. One of the things we did, I think I was a really good disruptive technology guy. So I kept coming up with uh, new products and our team came up with new stuff. And so we kind of out-earned my dysfunctions as a boss. I was inspirational without being inspiring. So I'm not an inspiring person, but what we were doing was inspiring and people were excited to be there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the innovation, the disruptive piece of that, because you had to face that as well, right? You had to watch the digital world show up and be prepared for that and manage through that. I'm curious, and our entrepreneurs who are listening, you know, many of them run into the same kind of, wow, the world shifted on me and I wasn't really ready for it. How do I get ready for the next time? We had online auctions before eBay did. That's how smart I am. (laughs) (laughs) I had a fabulous team and they said, you know, you need to get Beckett.com right away. You need to go digital. And this was in the early 90s. And, you know, we did it, but we didn't go full speed ahead. We did it defensively, not offensively. If I had known then what I know now, we would have gone much more aggressively. But as most entrepreneurs know, it's very difficult to cannibalize your own business. It just doesn't feel very good when you take that first bite out of something that's really working in the interest of doing something that wound up being next century. But, uh, you know, uh, that's how smart I was. Yeah, it's the innovator's dilemma, right? Christian Clayton you know, wrote about it. So Indeed. I, I want to shift over the topic to how your faith has informed what you've done. And there's probably no one more uniquely qualified that I can think about to talk a little bit about what's the difference between storing up our treasures on earth versus looking to our treasures, you know, in, in God's kingdom. And, you know, I'm interested in that with you because you have built a great business around this idea of collectibles, but I'm sure you've had to grapple with that yourself. So enlighten our listeners around that topic. Well, I'm hoping that all along I've held things loosely. 
I, I think I have. I mean, I have a, a lot of nice things, but they don't own me. I don't think. But what I'd like to tell the listeners about some of the ministries, I sold my company 15 years ago. I've been just as busy. I do this thing called Shine. I have a foundation, Shine Advisory Foundation. And so I help ministries, but also individuals and businesses on a pro bono basis with uh, some of their issues that they have. So I'm vicariously walking with them. And this is my spiritual gift of service in some sense, because when I was running the company, all anybody seemed to want from me was money. They wanted treasure. And I said, well, what about, can I get involved or can I do some due diligence? They said, well, no, we're not looking for that. We just, we just need some money. And so you've heard of the three T's, the time, talent, and treasure. They only want treasure. I wanted time, talent. But what I did was different that I think other of your listeners could do is that I now only give talented time. I don't separate out time and talent. I only give talented time, which means I don't, I do very little volunteer work. It's all expert level involvement, board count. expert witness again. It's being a consultant or an expert witness. And so that has been so much richer for me than just writing a check so somebody will leave my office saying, no, come into my office, let me invite some peers, and let's talk about why you need this money. And they say, well, that's just obvious. Well, no, it's not obvious. If you live in Dallas, Texas, or wherever you live in America, this is a generous city, a generous state, a generous nation. If you have a compelling business idea or ministry idea, and it's well executed, you will not lack for funds. If you are lacking for funds, you're not marketing right, you've not shaped your narrative. And what I found is that most people, when they go to their family and friends, just like the question you asked me, they either think you're crazy or they think you can do no wrong. There's usually nothing in between. They don't want to rain on your parade, but somebody needs to do the iron sharpening iron. And I can see groups that will do that when somebody has a business idea or they have a ministry where they're stuck. If they hire a consultant, the consultant has a vested interest in that engagement. I'm a free consultant. I have no reason to extend the engagement, no reason to mince any words. And I've now developed a pretty strong network of business guys in the area who love to come and weigh in, not as a board member, but as a board caliber person weighing in on board caliber issues, the ones that keep the ministry up late at night. Not the board meetings that I go to where they spend 90% of the time on what's working. And then, oh, we don't have enough time to talk about the long range plan or succession. Are you concerned about the many faith-driven entrepreneurs listening to this that are going to show up at your house in Dallas, Texas and take you up on that offer? Henry, over 25 years, we've had 5,000 meetings. So we've had 5,000 meetings. 5,000 meetings. Not all of them are big, but we've had 5,000 meetings over 25 years. Wow. So it's four or five a week on average. And so tell them they can get in line. I don't go to them normally. They come here. Uh, It's not worth a special trip to fly to Dallas. Although, actually. I did it. I did it. I know, but I'm saying there are definitely empty seats on the airplane now, but I don't think you want to get on an airplane right now for voluntary uh, travel. But people are in town, they come by, and like I said, it's 
It's trying to get the heart of the issue. And, you know, businesses need that too. It's more on the angel level than private equity. These are uh, mostly men. It's mostly a men's ministry, but there's women too. But they'll come and they, they have this idea. And what I found is that the same kind of advice and questions are applicable to businesses and ministries. When they talk about fundraising, it's more, it's marketing. There's, there's just a lot of similarities. So I, I want to build on that because one of the things that you've just talked about, of course, is that we live in a generous state. We live in a generous country and that if you have a good idea, you're going to be able to get funding for it. You're going to get ministry funding. You're going to get financial funding for your business. And that really comes from this kind of a concept of we worship a God of abundance, not one of scarcity. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs come at this from one of scarcity, which is there are only a certain amount of venture capitalists. I'm competing against the next guy. I've got to outflank them. And I think that you're coming at it by saying, no, 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 you're just looking at it from the wrong angle. And up until now, you have had people that are not speaking into your life that are really making you sharp. And here's how you need to go ahead and convert this problem that you're trying to solve into something that has more broad stream appeal. And in the process of that, you're going to get your financing. You're also going to be able to serve a larger population. Your revenue is going to grow and all those things. So I think that that's really profound. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs miss that. It's a subtlety of mindset, but it's really important. Out of these 5,000 meetings, what are some of the other things that you hear commonly from different entrepreneurs that just need to have that shift in mindset? They're just thinking about it wrong, whether it's hiring, you talked about capitalization. What are some of the other common mistakes you see faith-driven entrepreneurs, whether they're running a ministry or a business, what are some of the other ones they make? Well, one of the most common things, Henry, is that they make their pitch and they get blank stares and they think that the other people have a problem because they just don't get it. And so I could say, no, it's your problem. If they don't get it, you haven't articulated it very well. And so what's your secret sauce? What's your dynamic element that could go viral? What is something that makes you stand out from the crowd? And they say, well, I don't know. I just, I think I'm just supposed to do this. I said, well, that's, again, to go back to the inspiring, you know, if you're not an inspiring person, uh, you know, the cheerleader kind of person, there's got to be some substance there that people want to come alongside and say, I want to be part of this. Yes. And, and again, it's like I said, I've messed up in the past, but like I said, when I, when I had some big opportunities, I was defensive rather than offensive. These guys are taking the offense, but they don't have blockers out in front. There's not holes to go through. If they say, hey, I'm going to start a restaurant. I say, what are you going to serve? And they go, I don't know. Well, why is your restaurant going to be successful? And nobody's at, well, I love food. That's ridiculous. You know, what's your edge? And when I ask them that, they just don't, they don't always have an answer. So uh, SHINE is an acronym. S is strategic, H is hosting and hospitality, I is interactive and intercessory, N is networking, and E is encouragement. In short, it's strategic encouragement. It's myself and others telling the person in the hot seat, you've got what it takes for your God-given assignment, but you don't have clarity on what that assignment is. Things, it's, you know, in God's timing, it, you know, it's not ripe. You don't have everything in place. God may be waiting for you to assemble another person for your team. You don't have all the skills and abilities you need for this enterprise to be successful. That could be a personal business or ministry thing. Three rules of shine, no long speeches, everybody participates, and no fundraising pressure before, during, or after. The third one's really important. They're all important, okay? But men especially 
the men that don't like church, what do they say? It's a long speech. They just ask me for yeah. money and I never get to participate. Okay. So if the meetings that when I invite a person to come and sit in, they're not going to be hounded to be on the board. They're not going to be hounded to give funds. They're there for their pro bono expertise. And I put together what is like a cabinet, an instant cabinet for that ministry or for that business. You know, Jim, so many times people feel like they have to wait to this, you know, halftime moment in their life to start giving back and moving to significance. But we know we have young entrepreneurs that also have time. They have some discretionary time, but they don't think they can give it back yet because maybe I'm not knowledgeable enough. Maybe I'm not the expert yet. What advice can you give them? Because they're looking for purpose and meaning. They've got experience. Can they go begin giving their time back now? Well, I mean, it's the same argument applied to why some people don't tithe until they make it. You know, I can't tithe because I don't make enough money. I can't tithe my time or my talent or my treasure. And so it's the same mindset. You need to be faithful in a little. I mean, I, I didn't start doing thousands of meetings. It just, when I was running the company, I dedicated a half day a week. So in those days, it was Thursday afternoon, and my wonderful secretary would just line up meetings at, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, and four o'clock. And sometimes we'd have a lunch, depending on whether something was applicable, would need to have more people and have a better draw. And it was terrific. It was terrific. Yeah, that's encouraging. I hope our listeners are listening closely to that. There's a little time. That's right. Yeah, I, I love your tithing analogy. It's also the same as, you know, hey, if I lose some weight, I'll go to the gym. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, 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 no. You know, jump in there now. Jump in there now. The other aspect of that is that sometimes there's ministries that say, we want to meet with you. We've heard that you have some smart friends and we could really get some help, but we're not ready to meet because we don't have our act together. To which I say, if you had your act together, my friends would not be interested in meeting with you. What we're meeting about is the fact that you don't have it all together, and that is what is of interest to us. Oh, okay. Well, we don't even know the questions to ask. And so, well, you still got it wrong. You're not going to be asking the questions. We're asking the questions. Oh, okay. Then they come and they get some benefit. That's a great paradigm. You're 100% right, and I've heard that so many times. And actually, I say, okay, yeah, get your act together and come on back. That's the wrong thing. If I really want to serve them. Well, what I, well, the reason we've had so many meetings is because the private equity friends, the angel friends, they know that I'm a willing recipient of the not ready for prime time ideas. And so if you know somebody in Dallas that you've rejected, they don't have it together. I love meeting with those people. I think that I don't know what seeds are going to germinate, that they're going to be 30, 60, 100 fold and, and what are going to be duds. But I love spending time with people that don't quite have their act together. I don't want to meet with people that have low integrity, but if they're pretty sharp, they have a good heart, there's a good idea in there somewhere, but it's easily rejectable by somebody as savvy as you. I'm delighted to meet with them and hope that perhaps some of those and that subset of the not ready for prime time would be ready the following year. Okay, that's very helpful. That's my sweet spot. So I want to ask you something, and I want to bridge into close, too. So I'm going to ask you about the I in your shine, because you talked about intercession being a part of that I. I'd love for you to talk about that a bit. And then I'd also love for you to close this out by sharing something that you feel that God has spoken to you about 
in his words, something maybe you're learning from your daily meditation time, maybe something over the course of the last month, doesn't need to be today necessarily, but something that through God's word, he is showing you about himself and the work he wants you to do. Okay, let's... Uh... But start with the I, start with the intercession. I don't hear that often as a framework. I think that if I'm going to assess myself and the different things I do as a business person, as an investor, intercession and diligent prayer, is I'm not very high on that, but it's high enough to be at the center of what you do. Talk to us about that a bit. It is in the middle of the acronym. Indeed. Interactive, like we said, it's a different kind of interactivity. The intercession, perhaps a little bit different intercessory as well. We pray at the beginning of the meeting. We pray at the end of the meeting. My co-host, Joe Galindo, who's a C12 chair now and asked me, but he was my executive VP back and we've been longtime friends. And so in the beginning, he did most of the praying and I would just observe. And then I realized I'm really missing out. I have so many friends that are high-powered executives who can speak to a crowd. They can go up, take the microphone and commanding presence for any number of people, you know, dozens, scores, hundreds, thousands. But if you ask them to pray out loud in public, they say, uh, I got a sore throat. (laughs) And so I wind up being the guy that's praying now. So I went from not praying very much to praying a lot. So I prayed more than 5,000 times, but all those meetings are bathed in prayer before and after. But again, the prayer is not, I have an adage that, and it's the same thing applies to people that you're in the presence of. It's good to pray with your wife. It's good to pray for your wife, but it's not necessarily good to pray for your wife with your wife. In other words, I don't want my wife praying, Lord, give my husband the courage that he needs to do what he's supposed to do. That doesn't feel like a prayer to me. That feels like a kick in the pants. Yes, yes, I follow. So consequently, this intercessory, at the end of the meeting, it can't be, Lord, help this person that we've been interacting with for the last hour, hour and a half, to have the guts to follow through. You can see how it break down. We have to be affirming the person, but we're not necessarily affirming the plan that he walked in with. And we're more provocative than prescriptive, but we want to be strategically encouraging the person without telling him what he has to do. So that's the intercessory aspect. It's not we're the oracle, this is what you have to do. It's we've expanded your thinking. You need to take this home, do your own prayer for how you might act on this. There's always action steps, and most of them are good, but they're not all, you know, they need to have their own prayer. You know, prayer it leads to intimacy, which leads to self-awareness. And I can't tell you how many of these entrepreneurs and ministry leaders lack in self-awareness. And that self-awareness comes is sometimes can be proportional to your prayer life and your intimacy with God and intimacy with others. I like that. Prayer leads to intimacy, which leads to self-awareness. When you're brought close to the Holy God and you come to understand... Well, you pray more when you're in a crisis. You know, Lord, what's going on? Help me make sense of this. And many of the meetings are people coming in saying, why isn't this working? And I'll say, well, have you thought about this? Well, no, I never thought about that. So isn't that a possibility? Why it isn't working? They're either too much left-brained or they're too much right-brained frequently. Yeah. So tell us what God's Word is saying to you. I thought about this. Uh, I don't think I've ever been a perfectionist. The evidence to convict me of being a perfectionist 
would fall short when you look at all the publications that I've produced. I've done, you know, just so many pages of pricing and pricing and pricing, and none of them are perfect. Okay. But they had to be really good or I wouldn't have had a following. Again, I have yeah. teammates, so I have high standards. So to put that in scriptural terms, I looked at Philippians 2.3 to consider others more important than myself. And as an entrepreneur, I really had difficulty with that. I don't know. I need to take care of myself, my family, my employees, not necessarily in that order. So I moved to Philippians 2.4, which is to not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interest of others. And I thought, Lord, that I can do. I don't know that I'm going to fall short on not the selfish conceit stuff necessarily, but the Philippians 2.3 was a standard that I thought, you know, that's pretty tough. Maybe I can work into that. But Philippians 2.4, which follows right after, so yeah. it might be in context, I thought, you know, and so my prayer life is not merely looking out for my own personal interests, but also it really helps that I've got an amazing godly wife. That's, you know, that's worth, that is infinite worth. Proverbs 31. Amen. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for Shine. 5,000 meetings is incredibly motivating. That's amazing. If we could endeavor to be able to love on other people as they are forming their ideas and trying to understand what God has called them to do, to be able to be invited that many times over into what somebody's doing, that's a big deal. It's a lot of service for a long time. Thank you for that on behalf of the larger community. Well, you know, we love to spotlight a ministry that is locking arms with faith-driven entrepreneurs. And this week, we're going to spotlight our friends Scott Weiss and Luke Dooley at Ocean. They have a vision to ensure every entrepreneur has access to tools, resources, and community that will holistically equip them to bravely step out, do the work that they're called to do, and positively impact the world. One of the ways they do that each year is through an annual Ocean Faith Plus Entrepreneurship Conference. We'd encourage you to check that out and the list of top 25 events for faith-driven entrepreneurs to see how you can get engaged. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.